0: So Let's start at the beginning. When did you first start to hear from this person?
1: Um, I can't remember the exact date, but I think it was like around early 2017 or maybe late 2016. Okay. Um, and the reason why is like, I don't remember because I get a lot of them in my inbox. Like I get a lot of people who... Are quite evident trolls, or they are people who are evidently like anti-Muslim and kind of exhibit the same types of behaviors.
0: This is Hussain Kizvani. He's the UK and Europe editor for Mel magazine, a publication that writes about lifestyle and culture from the male perspective. A couple of years ago, he started receiving tweets from a Twitter account called True Brit.
1: His bio was that he had voted for Brexit and like MAGA and like lots of these like hashtags. There was a part of his bio which said something along the lines of like Islam is not a religion of peace. He only had about 30 or 40 followers.
0: Hussein says the messages were normally pretty disturbing, but nothing he hadn't seen before.
1: Sometimes he would send me pictures of uh, like like anti-Muslim cartoons. So one cartoon I remember was a cartoon of like the Prophet Muhammad like beheading a child or something like that it was very like disturbing but also Mm. stuff that i had seen before and other times they would just be like pictures so there was one that he liked to use which was like a picture of a pig with like halal written on
0: its side at first hussein didn't give the messages much heed but when truebrick continued to send messages without receiving a response hussein became curious
1: with trolling, a lot of it is about like provoking a reaction and they want kind of like a, like a righteous reaction. They want someone to like quote tweet them or publicly shame them. I'm not that kind of person because I don't think that really works and I don't think that Twitter is really, like, in a place where like provocation is, has such a high currency, inviting that doesn't necessarily like bring the results that you want. So for me responding to him was more like this idea of like this guy's been messaging me for like the past month is there something about me particularly that he is like interested in.
0: Hussein started a conversation with the person behind True Brit. In fact, they began to interact on a near daily basis, learning a lot about each other along the way
1: he would send me stuff that he really liked so he would send me like articles of like Aston Villa scores and everything which <laughs> means nothing to me because I'm not like a huge football fan and even by that virtue like I support like Charlton no one really cares that much about Charlton I think he used to really be into documentaries like nature documentaries okay. um, which I found bizarre
0: and then after talking to his troll for a few weeks Hussein decided to do something that some might find unusual
1: I remember, like, I was in my old office at a very late time at night, and it was just like I should just see if I can meet this guy. So I went to go meet this guy at his home.
0: I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week I learned what it was like for Hussein to not only confront his Islamophobic troll online, but to meet him face to face. And later on, we chat to Hussein about his new book, "Follow Me, Aki." in which he explores how the internet has helped and hindered a new generation of British Muslims.
1: Like it's good to know that like the world won't cave in and that there is this network of people who are willing to support me. This is Chips with Everything.
0: Did you have any concerns when you went to meet him for your safety or otherwise?
1: Uh, Kind of. Um, you know, it was really funny, like, when my mum read it, she was just like, you did what? Oh, like no. 'cause Because, like, she remembers a time I was like, yeah, I'm going to Birmingham to do some work for my book, and she's just assuming that I'm just doing some field work. She did not know that I was doing this. Um, so I just want to apologise to her again. <laughs> um, I had some concerns, and I'd given, like, a couple of friends, like, the location and my phone number, and I checked in with them, like, you know, semi-regularly. So I kind of followed the journalism school way of, like, you know, trying to, like profile a source, then that's how I'd approach it.
0: Hussain made the journey to True Brit's home, which he describes as on a quiet suburban road just a few miles outside of Birmingham city centre. He knocked on the door. And finally came face to face with the person who had been harassing him for months.
1: So he was kind of like middling height. He had like a kind of unkempt beard, like more like stubble than anything else. He was wearing like a t-shirt and some like joggers. Like this was a man who was just staying at home that day.
0: And what then is true Brit like as a person in the offline world?
1: Um, I mean, he was very quiet to begin with. He was like quite surprised I think that I showed up. He was like perfectly like kind to me in like real life. He kind of greeted me in the way that you know you would invite a guest to a home like he offered me tea and everything he lived in a pretty normal like a normal looking household in the sense that there wasn't like paraphernalia on the walls or like Mm. flags or anything you know but there were also like pictures of like his like daughter and everything that were on the table and there were like you know bills and all that stuff so it looked really normal like you wouldn't go into the house and be like yeah like a really unhinged troll lives here
0: Mm. And as you kind of spoke to him, you asked him a bit more about himself and his personal life. Can you tell me a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, from what he told me anyway, like he had gone through a divorce, his wife and his daughter still lived in the same city as him, but like lived in a different area. Um, I think he sees his daughter not as often as he would like to, but Mm. every so often. And... It also like influenced why he was spending so much time online because this is also a guy who like in real life, was very shy. I think that he was just like dealing with a lot of personal stuff, and for him, like being online was not only a way to get away from those problems but to almost like live a life where those problems didn't exist.
0: Did he explain to you why he started this account?
1: Kind of I think what he like what he told me was like this patchy story about how he had learned the truth about like the world online and like he wanted to kind of be part of this you know community of people of truth tellers and like you know tell people who were like me like journalists and stuff who were telling lies from our like offices in London that you know this is what's happening in the real world and stuff and then also at the same time I think there was this appeal of like anonymity as well which meant that he felt that he could say these things and he could say like be abrasive and be kind of like brash and confrontational without like people finding out like detecting who he was or anything.
0: Hussein seemed to come to understand this man that he calls Phil, because it seemed there was a lot going on in his personal life. But this understanding didn't go both ways.
1: Like he said what he felt about Islam. He felt that like it was still like an evil religion. He still felt that like Muslim communities were like harboring sympathies for extremism and stuff. He never really qualified that with like, oh, but you're different. My feeling was he didn't even see me as a, as a Muslim person. He just saw me as a person. But he kind of repeated points that he said online, but he said it in this way that was almost abstract. It was like, you're kind of separate from like my beliefs and everything.
0: You don't think he felt any regret for the things he'd said to you or?
1: No, not really. I think he just felt that it was a very normal thing. I think he was like, well, that's what I believe. And like I say it, you know, But like, that's what I said, and I'm not kind of turning away from that. Maybe he did in private, but he wouldn't say it publicly, I think.
0: Phil told Hussain that he spent hours online, dedicating a lot of his time to watching YouTube videos that were full of conspiracy theories and right-wing ideology.
1: I know with social media platforms, like, the recommended algorithm is designed so that you stay on the platform, and like, it's a business decision, right? So like... Social media platforms want you to spend as much time on these on them as possible. So it makes sense that they would use the data that you've technically consented to giving them to provide you with content that you really like. And a really good example of this is like Spotify, for example. Like everyone loves Spotify Discover. You know, I, I hate giving my data out to companies, but I'm willing to give it to Spotify because it just curates my playlist really well. And YouTube like does the same thing. It's just that like listening to music and watching videos is such a different kind of interaction and it requires like you know different types of thinking when you're thinking about safeguarding so with youtube i imagine that like the intention was that oh if you really like this cooking video we're going to recommend you like 10 more and that way you have like 10 different recipes and isn't that amazing and it is like you know i'm someone who like cooks via youtube right (laughs) but you know, I don't think they, I don't think they kind of realize that like the political element of YouTube would kind of grow at the way the grove of the way it has, and as a result, like you only need to start in very soft corners of like right-wing, identitarian YouTube, and a few like you know, a few recommendations later, it, you end up like watching videos where they're promoting like white nationalist like tropes and conspiracy theories. Like I get why the algorithm exists, but I think we've now advanced to this conversation where it's like, is the pleasure of having like a you know, an automatically curated online experience that is tailored towards our exact interests, is that necessarily a good as good a thing as we thought it was maybe ten years ago?
0: The internet gives us easy access to a lot of people. And while Hussein was visiting Phil at his home, his troll took the time to pop online and target somebody else. London mayor Sadiq Khan.
1: Phil tweeted a picture of a pig to Sadiq Khan during towards the end of our interview, and we had to pause because he he wanted to do this tweet, and I found that interesting not only because we were doing it in the course of the like in the course of doing an interview, but because of what he was actually trying to do. So what I think was that like, he knew that Sadiq Khan wasn't going to respond to him, he knew that Sadiq Khan wasn't going to like interact with him in any way. So why did he do it? And I think he did it because he's signaling to other people in his network, people like him, people who he follows, people who follow him, people who have like very similar views and similar outlooks, That like, oh, look at this fun tweet I did to Sadiq Khan, where I posted a picture of a pig and you should like it or you should retweet it. And that would amplify that message. So what he does is it amplifies his position in that network. Um, It has nothing to do with Sadiq Khan. What it does is that it just kind of like increases his clout in that community. I think that when we're talking about trolling, like that's such an important thing because for a lot of the time, these trolls aren't trying to kind of like get at the people that they're like tweeting at. Like for them, that's like a secondary thing. What they're trying to do is prove to other trolls and prove to other people who engage in that type of trolling behaviour that look at this funny thing and like you should give it some attention.
0: How, d- how did this conversation go then? Did he say, excuse me, could we take a break so I can tweet? Or was he just doing it while he was talking?
1: I mean, he was like scrolling on his phone while we were talking anyway. But he was like, oh, Sadiq Khan has just tweeted something. Can you give me a second? I was mm-hmm. like, okay, fine. And then he was like, and then I asked him, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm just sending something to Sadiq Khan. Okay. I was like, okay, well.
0: So in my kind of personal experience, I've found that a person's prejudice towards certain groups can sometimes be alleviated when they actually get to know someone from that group. So whether that's someone from a different race or religion or someone from like the LGBTQ community that you've just never had a chance to interact with before. Do you think that marginalized people like people from those communities should be reaching out to people who hold these kinds mm. of prejudices to encourage this?
1: There's a part of me that's like sometimes it does help. Sometimes it does help when like people who have not had a lot of experience with like marginalized groups or minorities to suddenly be like, you know, especially when like their, the the competing vision that they have is something that has been completely created online mm. so you know you've heard the stories about like people who have never grown up with muslims and whose sole information about them comes from like the internet and comes from like these like anti-muslim anti-refugee websites um so their whole kind of vision is curated around that and i know a few people who are like that and they'll look at me and they'll kind of say, that, oh, you know, I didn't realise that, like, a Muslim could, like, speak English so well. It's like, okay, well, thanks. Um, <laughs> um, but then, on the other hand, and in that vein too, it's kind of like, you know, is should, should, like, minorities who are already dealing with, like, a lot, who are already dealing with, like, you know, microaggressions and other forms of, like, societal oppressions, that should they now be shouldering the burden of having to not only teach people what these aggressions and microaggressions are, but they should be actively working to rehabilitate people.
0: We hear stories about people from different backgrounds with opposing views who meet, talk, listen, get to know each other, and eventually develop a mutual understanding that may even become something like a friendship. It's there in Hollywood movies, and in our personal lives, a lot of us can probably think of someone we know who changed our perspective on something. Unfortunately, that didn't happen with Hussein and Phil.
1: His account had gone by like 2018, so I assumed that he had got like deleted or it had got culled or something, or he had like some sort of alt that he didn't kind of follow me on. And then my editor was like, hey you should try to reach out and see what he's up to these days. So I used the number that like I had been given back when I went to go meet him and I just reached a voicemail. So I left a few voicemails and I didn't receive anything back. So all my kind of knowledge of where he is is really, like, speculative. And what I'm hoping is that if he's seen The Guardian article, that he'll reach out using his alt, even if if it's just to send me, like, Islamophobic pictures.
0: Why do you want to hear from him again?
1: I just want to see, like, how he responded to the piece. The thing that I was trying to do was advance the stories that were being told about people like him, and being like, this is a much more complicated story than I think lots of analysts and lots of commentators would like to think, and what I would like to know is whether, like he thinks that it was a good representation of his views because I think you know it's very it would have been very easy to just attack him and be like yeah, this guy is causing so much havoc and he's contributing to this culture of, like, visceral, verbal violence. But I didn't want to do that. I kind of wanted to allow him to kind of tell his story in his own terms. And, you know, as a, report, as a journalist, like, you're always interested in whether you told the story properly. So, yeah.
0: You can read Hussain Kesvani's full story at theguardian.com. It's called What Happened When I Met My Islamophobic Troll. After the break, I'll talk to Hussein about his new book, where he explores what it's like for a new generation of British Muslims who have grown up using the internet to exist in an online world.
1: In all the stories that I wrote and all the people that I spoke to, people who made it in the book and people who didn't, they were all trying to use technology to kind of create a faith that was true to themselves and true to their kind of beliefs and their relationships of God and technology finally giving them like the permission to be able to do that in a way that was just
0: completely unprecedented. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Chips with Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Webber. Before the break, journalist Hussain Kasvani told me about the time he went to meet the man who had sent him dozens of anti-Islam messages on Twitter. The man's account has since disappeared, and Hussain hasn't spoken to him since. Last week, Hussain's book, titled Follow Me Key, hit the shelves. In it, he explores how British Muslims have been affected by growing up with the internet.
1: So I started writing it because back in 2015, I was a religion reporter for a online news outlet and what they wanted me to do was to, to kind of tell stories about young religious people, like re- young religious kids and how they lived and like, what their lives were like because the editor at the time was like, we d- I don't really know much about them and I feel like it's an important thing to cover. I was in that job for like a year and a half and I really enjoyed it, but what I found frustrating was that the nature of like news meant that unless it was like this big scoop, there was like very little currency for that to kind of be a priority on a news agenda. So what I found was that like, A lot of the stories that were really interesting to me, things like people setting up their own mosques in their own houses, or what it's like to kind of spend all day like, you know, trolling like Muslims and not really hearing back from them. Like, this stuff was really difficult to pitch to Mm. a news desk. And then, with my own experiences, like growing up in a practicing Muslim family, but also growing up in a place where so much of my interactions with faith were through the internet. I also kind of was frustrated with the way that Muslim communities were being represented, which was very geographical. So it was like, okay, if we want to do a Muslim story, we should just go to Bradford and see what the people in Bradford think. And I was kind of like, I don't know if this really tells like an accurate story. I don't think it just definitely doesn't tell like an accurate story of how my generation, how the generation younger than me, Gen Z, like how they interact with Islam. And so much of like, because so much of our lives are intertwined with technology, like, religion also does that. And I feel like it's really difficult for people to, you know, when they look at religion and we are like, oh, this is like this set of like old archaic rules and like old traditions. How can that mesh with like modern technology? And what I wanted to show is like, not only does it absolutely can, but in religious online spaces, often a lot of the phenomena that we see in politics happens there first.
0: Throughout the book, Hussain looks at a number of different platforms that Muslims have used to help connect them with their faith. YouTube is a big one.
1: I interviewed someone in the book who is now like an Islamic YouTube influencer. (laughs) Someone who like kind of promotes this idea that you can be a practicing conservative Muslim and also like have fun and do comedy and hang out with your mates and like you know have a really good social life and for him it was like there's this vision I have of like young Muslims think that if you if you want to be a practicing Muslim, you have to just pray all the time and you have to just like do all these things that are boring. And I wanted to show via the medium of video that, you know, you, could, you can kind of live like a modern lifestyle while also staying true to your faith. He was also one of the guys who was like one of the first adopters of YouTube. And what he used to do was like he used to upload Islamic videos and Islamic prayers to YouTube. And he gained like thousands of listeners because it was the first time that like there was a place where you didn't have to like use tape cassettes to listen to stuff you know, this was a place where you could type in any sort of prayer that you wanted and you could listen to it like immediately. It was like an on-demand service. YouTube has really changed the in that vein because there is now like a greater degree of being able, a greater degree of choice. Like Mm. if you want to listen to a particular kind of lecture or you want to listen to a particular speaker, you can do that. You can change your settings in a way where you can decide what you want to listen to. And that's a real fundamental change from like having to go to a local mosque or going to like any mosque and like, you know, sort of having to listen to whatever the, the imam, like, will wants to talk about that day.
0: What about Facebook then? What is an online imam and how do they use Facebook to reach their followers? Facebook
1: is so interesting. Facebook is so interesting to me because, like, on the one hand, in popular culture, it's like, oh, who uses Facebook anymore? <laughs> but in, like, Muslim spaces, it was really different because I interviewed a, a speaker who uses Facebook Live for example to do like one one and a half hour Q&A sessions every Monday and he'll talk about any type of controversial topic that Muslims who like feel like they can't really do at their local mosque so he'll talk about things like sexual health and masturbation and alcoholism and drug abuse you know these things that are like sort of considered to be taboo subjects in traditional spaces he'll spend an hour and a half talking to that via like a facebook live video and he'll like be able to kind of curate his own like backdrop and everything and like it's all just very fascinating then you have like facebook groups of people who are really into like niche aspects so sometimes they're like study groups so you have like facebook quran study groups where You know, someone will post, like, a particular passage for the week. And, you know, during that week, everyone will kind of in the comment sections discuss it. Sometimes you have, like, online imams who will, you know, give... Not necessarily lectures, but will give like talks via like Facebook live to a niche audience of people. And often they're like young men. So one of the interesting things that I found was imams who were like giving marriage lessons, like mm. for men who wanted to get married, but didn't really know how to approach a subject, they would do these like seminars, like invite only seminars. Uh, for young men to kind of hear like marriage tips and everything and I hung out in a couple of those spaces and they were pretty they were pretty fascinating so for like very niche aspects or very kind of like specific aspects Facebook can really be a good way of channeling those interests
0: you've talked about men there um, but I'm interested in one of the stories uh, you told about a young woman called Samira and Mm. her relationship with Facebook and and feminism and her faith Can you tell us more about that
1: yeah but also like because her story is so common as well so with like Samira um, and also some of the other women I spoke to like Facebook was a way of like taking this kind of community issue that they had, in which case was lack of space in like a women's prayer space compared to men. So what she ended up doing was like finding people who felt felt very similar things. And what she was able to do through the internet was able to see that, oh, this isn't just a problem in my community. Like the idea of inadequate female prayer spaces is not only a national phenomenon but also a global phenomenon and that's where like websites like Hidden Marquis, like side entrance comes in where it's like a tumblr blog which shows how like you know squalid some like women's prayer spaces are compared to men's spaces and in so doing initiating this conversation of like well if women are a fundamental part of how mosques are run like you know a lot of them do, like, all the cooking, they do cleaning. The, why aren't they being reciprocated with this, like, safe space of them? Why is it that men get more space? Um, so it's like this very simple problem with the knowledge that, like, one, you know, a group of people saying this is much more powerful than one person saying it.
0: Muslims are able to find online communities where they can discuss things they might not feel able to in a traditional family setting. Hussein says this has been particularly beneficial to marginalised groups, like Muslims who are LGBTQ.
1: Technically speaking, Facebook is, you know, you can have like locked Facebook groups. You can have moderators who make sure that they can monitor like who's coming in and whether they're kind of genuine or not. And in so doing, they can create this safe environment where people can kind of talk about like the struggles of like coming out in a Muslim family or the struggles of like dating as like a gay Muslim or the struggles in getting married or even like theological questions around kind of like reconciling LGBTQ issues with like um traditional conservative Islam and they can do it in a way that isn't like interrupted by like bad faith actors. So, mm. you know, some of the people that I spoke to, they were the people who were saying, well, whenever I talk about like LGBTQ issues on like my public social media page, it ends up being it ends up becoming this battle between like Muslims who are anti LGBTQ, but also people on the far right who don't have my best interests but are weaponizing my identity to kind of have a shot at like these Muslims. And not only do I not want that, but also it's not really changing anything. It's Mm -hmm. not really doing anything and it's not making me feel safe. It's making me feel like I'm this kind of battleground in which this like conflict is taking place. So what these private Facebook groups and what these private groups, like even WhatsApp groups and everything do, is ensure that there's a space where like people can openly talk about their feelings, openly talk about their experiences in a environment which won't be hijacked.
0: Yeah, I'm interested in the conversations around dating, specifically, so online dating is obviously a huge thing now. And you said that you found it's also incredibly popular with young British Muslims. Mm. Where are young Muslims finding love online?
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Muzmatch, mostly. Uh, (laughs) Muzmatch um, Muzmatch is such an interesting company
0: um, because they've
1: kind of really taken the Muslim dating kind of online culture by storm and have basically dominated, like, that scene. And they've done it in a way that's really interesting because, you know, dating has always been a big thing in Muslim communities because marriage is a big thing, right? Mm. So growing up like the question that I mostly got was like when are you getting married and I'm like you know I'm 15 man like you know um, <laughs> like come on um you know when are you getting married like you know are you going to get married to someone in your community are you going to get married to like someone who's in like the same faith as you like almost all my conversations with my cousins as far as I know um that aren't about like football or anything are <laughs> about getting married so it was going to always going to be a big part of this book but what Musmatch has done is they have been able to kind of take individual experiences and use that in a way to accompany like traditional forms of marriage so for musmatch like for them it's like you know we you know they view themselves as a marriage app they view themselves as a company that wants to get as many people married in islamic ways as possible but what they've also done is like added individualized features so what they've said is like okay so you can you know there's a scale of like how religious you are and you can kind of set a number on that scale and that way the algorithm will filter the people who are comfortable with you like maybe being very practicing or not practicing at all and then you can kind of specify what type of denomination that like you know if there is one you can specify what kind of area you want to do you can specify how long you know how long you got you know you want to see each other before you Um, Consider getting married and for some people that would be like a month and for some people that would be like you know two or three years or something like that so what they've been able to do is like filter this process and take the best of like what secular dating apps do Mm. and have been very successful at like the notion of choice and the notion that like you know you're in you're in the driving seat and that's such a big departure because, as far as like I was aware growing up, there was always this idea that like the decisions on who you get married to are not entirely yours, like your parents are going to be involved your relatives are going to be involved your community is going to be involved that's how like traditional community marriage happened and musmatch has basically turned that on its head and be like okay we're going to introduce a service where you're in charge but you can still stay true to your like your religious beliefs and you don't even have to be like a practicing muslim to do it you can you just you can just be someone who identifies as a muslim um you know ethnically or culturally and Mm. you can still be part of this app There were no warnings. It took just under an hour for four terrorist attacks to bring panic and confusion to the streets of London. The city's mayor, Ken Livingston, praised Londoners.
0: In the book, Hussein talks about the rise of Islamophobia. It's hardly a new phenomenon. In 1997, before the September 11 attack and the July 7 bombings in London, the House of Commons presented a report about rising Islamophobia in Britain. So anti-Islam rhetoric has long been on the rise. But Hussain points out that things started to get worse from around 2007.
1: You know, because, again, with Al-Mahajarun, like, so much of their propaganda was disseminated online. It was disseminated through, like, PDFs. It was disseminated through, like, MP3s that you could download from LimeWire. And I know this because, like, I downloaded a few of them. Can you,
0: for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what that is, can you explain?
1: So they were a extremist group, a conservative extremist group that was led by Anjum Chowdhury, who was a British-born... Um, qualified lawyer who became a very kind of orthodox uh, presenting preacher who also justified violence as a means to establish an Islamic state. Like they were really early adopters of knowing how, you know, video and how like um, network messaging was really gonna help spread their message. And even though they never grew into this like huge street organization, they still caused like enough kind of havoc by being very good at like the PR front to cause that rift mm. that we're still kind of feeling today.
0: Hussain doesn't shy away from the fact that some Muslims have been negatively influenced by social media. We see radicalization of all kinds of people, from Muslims to those on the far right. But he believes we can't simply blame the internet and social media companies.
1: So what social media has done is, like, is accelerate things that were already there. Like I don't think that the internet itself is like to blame. And I don't think that like internet service providers are to blame for like the rise of extremism. So you know, these people who are vulnerable and they're already susceptible to extremists taking advantage of them, what is happening is that they're, they're now in a system where accessing those types of people is becoming far easier, far quicker and much harder to detect if we do want to go to a system where it's like okay we need more human moderators and we need more surveillance that poses big challenges for internet freedom as well right Mm. Uh, so like you're really kind of like walking a tightrope and i don't necessarily have the answer to like how you kind of get to the other side safely
0: but for some the internet is a safe place to leave islam how does that kind of thing happen
1: for like lots of ex-muslims that I've spoken to over the years they've all said that like I didn't even think ex-muslims were a thing until like I came on the internet and I saw people who left islam and they were like happy about it and I realized at that point that like not only was I wanting to go there anyway but like it's good to know that like the world won't cave in and that there is this network of people who are willing to support me if, like, I do, you know, if I do leave this faith. So the internet can provide those, like, safe havens. What they can also do is provide, like, um, a sense of, you know, re- like realism when it comes to stuff like that. So you have ex-Muslims who are like, you know, when you leave Islam, you don't have to give up everything, like, you can still care about your family, you can still, like, take valuable lessons from Islam, it's still, like, part of you, and that's okay, you can reconcile that. And I think having other people, Who can tell you that especially when you're like you're a young and confused person someone who doesn't really know what is going to happen if they make this decision like that can be hugely empowering and hugely comforting
0: what's been your biggest takeaway from writing this book
1: i think the thing that i took from it was that in any situation regardless of like religiosity regardless of like how devout or not devout you are the muslim the british muslim experience is very much about reconciliation and it's about Being giving yourself the permission to orientate and direct your faith in terms that are comfortable to you and doing that while confronting various kind of forces both like families and communities but also like the state um the government uh which is trying to kind of like define who you are or what you should be or what the right way to kind of interact with your faith is and what i found was like in all the stories that I wrote and all the people that I spoke to, people who made it in the book and people who didn't, they were all trying to do this, they were all trying to use technology to kind of create a faith that was true to themselves and true to their kind of beliefs and their relationships of God and technology finally giving them like the permission to be able to do that in a way that was just completely unprecedented um, before like the advent of like modern social media.
0: Huge thanks to Hussain Kazvani for coming in to chat to me this week. There'll be a link to where you can buy his book on this week's episode description on the Guardian website. Chips is produced by Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening.
1: For more great podcasts from the Guardian, Just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.